0: book of Matthew, chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and, and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your, heart, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? All right. There's like 12 problems here. The reference is wrong, and I, and I gave them the wrong place to start. So if you're confused, welcome to Watermark. <laughs> fit right in with us. Um, turn up light number one for me as well. No, it's not working. Yeah. All right. Everybody, good. It's Christmassy. Uh We got. My wife's like, "Don't make any awkward jokes about all the decorations." Look at everybody. It's like Narnia. Okay. All right. Okay. So, I got I got a lot going on here today, Um, and I'm just going to push through. Verse. Ignore the reference. It's just wrong. Verse 16 through 17 and, yeah, 18 too. I'm just going to kind of push through this one because we've talked about this. We've talked about like the whole idea of this, of being a hypocrite. Um, And then we're going to work our way down here. I'm going to talk about um, first century um, moths, vermin, um, thieves breaking in, all that. Give it some context so you're like, oh, that's what they would have pictured in their mind when they're reading this. And then we're going to get to this part down here which is easily one of the most confusing things Jesus has ever said. And I got some professional help and, and uh, not for my brain, like not psychologically, like for the text. Um, and I, 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 um, I'll tell you about that. And uh, I think it's going to be fun, but the problem is the bottom part's super hard to explain. So if you're going to zone out anywhere, zone out at the beginning and then wake up later and then come back and stay focused on the end, okay? So let's pray. Um, and let's, let's get going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people, um, my brothers and sisters, my family here, um, bless our time together. Let us, uh, embrace this for the gift that it is, um, speak through me, allow me to remember the things I've studied, allow me to communicate clearly, um, allow me to communicate well, allow, uh, all of us to listen well, um, and all, let, let us all sort of do our part together in this um, so that the body of Jesus, through the delivery of the word, can be made whole and encouraged and given new understanding and new vision. Um, may we all understand and grow together. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so again, um, I'm, so I'm going to start here. I'm going I'm to work my way through the beginning pretty quickly. Uh, Matthew 6.16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Um, Okay, so the word hypocrites, again, the word hypocritus, um, it it means play acting. It's somebody who puts on a costume and goes on a stage and tells you a story, right? Um, And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's he's confronting and rebuking people who act spiritual on the outside, who act holy. Um, We know exactly what that looks like. We've seen it everywhere. They proclaim sort of this holy spirituality, um, but it's all fake and it's meaningless and it's usually used for power, uh, for gaining power and influence over people in some way. Um, And so here's how this looked with as it pertains to fasting. Um, In the first century, market days were um, Monday and Thursday. These are the days that everyone in the city and everyone in the rural Towns outside the, the, the countryside, all the workers in the fields would come in Mondays and Thursdays. They'd come into the city and go, they'd go to what's called the Agora, the open area sort of marketplace where everyone would be selling all their goods. Um, this also just happened to be the two days of the week when everybody's gathered together. It happens to be the two days of the week that um, the religious leaders decided um, these are the days where we're going to fast. Mondays, and Thursdays. Um, and so the market days for the general public were also the fasting days for the Jewish people. Um, and so you're going to have a huge crowd of people and you're going to be practicing some spirituality. Um, might as well put on a bit of a show. Hippocrates. Like, dress up and tell them a story. And so what they would do is they would put on sackcloth and ashes. They were dressed like they were mourning, um, mourning for like a lost person. Um, They would put on sackcloth, ashes on their head, ashes on their face. They would um, let their hair um, sort of go wild and and dread it a little bit. And their beard, they would let it just go wild. um, And basically not dress themselves up. In in fact, make themselves look worse. And they would wander through the town um, at the marketplace, just kind of moaning and groaning like zombies. And kind of, um, you know, putting on a show. Like, oh, what's wrong? Nothing. I can't tell you. I just... Man, I'm hungry. Are you fasting? I can't tell you. But man, that food looks good. Um, and, and they're just like, oh, you're, you're fat. these are your fasting days. And so obvious hypocrisy. Obviously doing it for the praises of people to be, um, to say, wow, you guys are dedicated to your religion and you're holy and you do so much for your God. And, um, and so Jesus um, speaks against this. The early church understood, understood the hypocrisy of all of this, and they understood how dangerous it is when you use religion to gain, um, power and prestige and to get people to look at you in some way and praise you for what you're doing. And so, remember the first, uh, century church manual I talked about called the Didache? Uh, in chapter eight of the Didache, it's, it's a first century manual for how Christians are to live. Um, it's, it's not in the canon, um, of scripture. Um, it is just an extra book that we now have. Um, but it says this, it says, let not your fasting be appointed in common with the hypocrites. For they fast on the second day of the week, Monday, and on the fifth, Thursday. But do ye fast during the fourth and the preparation day. So they would fast um, on different days altogether so as to separate themselves from what was going on. Um, not only that, they followed the teachings of Christ uh, that he lays out in verse 17 where he says, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your father who was unseen. So they would oil their hair and they would, they would brush their hair and their beard and they would dress up nice and they would clean their face and they would make it look like they were not fasting at all and nobody would know. And then their fasting would have spiritual internal impacts on their soul, on their spirit. It would be, it'd, it'd be internal prayer, um, a dialogue going with God. So um, it's a totally different way of being. Um, and the early Christians understood that um, there are two different things that you live for. You can live for people, for earthly things, for, for earthly praise, all of this stuff, or you can live on this totally different path, the, the narrow road, they called it, a way of being and living that most people were not on, that had nothing to do with the lures of the world, money, fame, all of that. It was something vastly different. And so the, the rest of this passage Jesus lays out what that looks like. So he says, This is just spirituality. This is just fasting. There is more. Um, and so Jesus says this. He goes on to say, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so. I'm going to work my way all through this. I'm going to start sort of... Um, let me see. I'm going to start in the middle here. Um, treasures in heaven part. Um, and then we're going to go up and then we're going to go down. So, the treasures in heaven part. Um, I want to talk to you about the idea of heaven for a second. We have a specific sort of... In in modern evangelical Christianity, there's this specific idea of heaven um, that is it's a destination after you're dead kind of thing. Um, uh, that... That is rooted more in Gnosticism than Christianity, than first century Palestinian Judaism that Jesus was and Paul was in. Um, It's a different kind of thing. Uh, Over time, stuff gets kind of distorted and we lose context, which is why biblical scholarship is really important, Um, as well as reading historians. Um, Because we know a lot now, a lot more today, about... Um, first century Palestinian Judaism, of which, again, Jesus and Paul and many of the disciples were part of. We know a lot more about that today than we did even 50 years ago. Um, uh, for one, we know that, okay, so the, the Jewish people did believe in an afterlife. They believed in resurrection. That was the, that was the start of it. That was afterlife. Um, and they believed God's people would be resurrected. Um, the Christians pointed to the resurrection of Jesus, and they called it the first fruits. They said, "What well, Jesus is that resurrection. He's the first fruits of which all of the rest of us will be. So um, when, they were talk, when they would talk about life after death, they would point to the resurrection of Jesus and say, look, he's got his body. He's eating fish, but he's passing through walls. It's something different, but it's kind of the same, but it's different. Um, glorified body. There's all these phrases that they would use. Um, but the Jewish people did not refer to the state of life after death, they did not refer to that as heaven. They didn't. Um, Heaven was a different concept altogether. Um, And so I'm going to give a a, a scholarly definition um, from N.T. Wright, of course. If you're playing Tommy Sermon bingo, check off N.T. Wright. (laughs) Um, And then I'm going to give you my definition that I had a while ago. Um, Just sort of to open this up, and I have some scripture references here for you and everything. So... Uh, N.T. Wright says, heaven is God's dimension of the created order. So I, w- I want you to like, sort of think this through. Heaven is God's dimension of the created order, whereas earth is the world of space, time, and matter that we know. Normally, hidden from human sight, heaven is occasionally revealed or unveiled so that people can see God's dimension of ordinary life. So um, I would describe it as, as sort of God's normative When things are as they should be under the rule and reign of God, um, with Jesus as King, sort of thing. Um, And so, about nine years ago or so, um, I had I wrote a song about this idea, and I described it sort of as this, describing that realm, God's realm. I didn't call it heaven in the song; I called it God's realm. Um, same idea, it's, until all are fed, until all know home, until all are free, until justice is done, until peace the way, until grace the law, until love the rule, until God's realm comes. So like that's my personal description of, of like, this idea. It's, it's, a, it's a, a concept, it's a state, it is, a, it is something that is described tons of different ways in Scripture. There's, there's places where it's described as streets of gold, because when you no longer need gold, what are you going to do with it? And just put it on the road and walk on it, right? Like it's described as pearly gates because gates are normally built to protect things like pearls. Well, they don't matter to us anymore. We're gonna put them on. The, I'll just put them on. Build a gate out of them, whatever. You know, like it's this whole other thing. Um, Jesus describes heaven as or the kingdom of heaven. Now, hold on, heaven and the kingdom of God—not the same thing at all. This all gets a, a little complicated, but. Nothing really matters on you figuring all this out, right? This is all conversation, and this is all um, part of the Christian tradition of like working on all of this. Um, kingdom of God is something that we are part of. We are citizens of the kingdom. Jesus is our king, Lord. Um, in the same way that we are Americans, we have a president. Um, scriptures would say, actually, you are not Americans. You are, um, you are um, uh, what is it called, resident aliens. You're, you're citizens of a kingdom of which Jesus is Lord. And... Because Jesus in scriptures over and over again is described in this kingly description. Luke um, is the only person who calls Jesus Savior in, in the Gospels. There's only one, one author in scriptures that calls Jesus Savior, and that is Luke. And the reason he calls Jesus Savior is because Caesar Augustus was the one that was called Savior in their day. And Luke is basically saying, no, is not. Jesus is. All right. It's all, all the language is there. Um, it takes some understanding to sort of of grasp it all, but it can also be understood and lived out. Um, Jesus describes the kingdom of God as something so wonderful and so beautiful that when you find, if you were to find it in a field, buried in a field, you would sell everything you had to buy that field and receive it. So it's this other way of living. It's where everything is as it should be. God is reigning. It is something that exists alongside of what exists now. We have the earthly realm and we have the heavenly realm And one of the goals of Christianity is is our work is to bring, as as the Lord's Prayer says, heaven to earth. Bring heaven here. As as where God is, that's how it should be. Um, And so there's all of that. Um, So what the Jewish people are not saying is, live your life for after you die. Don't worry about life now. I have heard a lot of, preaching over the years growing up in a particular vein of Christianity that kind of taught um, nothing matters in life. People work so hard for this life and, and trying to make this place better, but all that matters is the other side. That is false. Um, God is working. God said creation is good. God is taking it somewhere. Um, I believe in the reconciliation of all things to God. I believe that one day things will be made right. I believe God coming down is the whole thing, the reign of God here. Okay, so um, when it says in this passage, do not store it for yourselves treasures on earth, but store it for yourselves treasures in heaven, we are being offered two ways to live, kingdom of earth, kingdom of heaven, both within our reach now. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, treasures in heaven, Um, not earthly kingdoms, treasures here on earth. And then he describes um, these treasures uh, let's see if make sure I'm not skipping anything. Um, and he describes it uh, like this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Um, I want to work through this real fast. I'm going to start with moths. Um, because, interestingly enough, in the ancient world, um, bingo, again, ancient world. I want to make a bingo card. I was just thinking about this this morning and give it to you guys. And one day we're just going to play sermon bingo. All the words will be there. Um... Where moths and vermin destroy. So in the ancient world, the, uh, the clothing that you would wear was part of your wealth. There's this interesting passage uh, in the book of 2 Kings where this person is, is, is due some payment. He did some nefarious... He was a ne'er-do-well. All right. And he did some work and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to pay you. What, how shall I pay you for your dastardly deeds that you did? And he says, please... It says, please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Now... If you'll remember, we talked about this. A talent is, is literally the largest measurement in the ancient world of money. So that's like me paying you for doing something and saying, I don't know, give him a like, billion dollars and a pair of Levi's and a new jacket. <laughs> and we're like, I can buy my own, thanks. But in the ancient world, uh, your clothing was literally part of wealth. Um, because everyone, there was no closets or anything like that. People had two articles of clothing they wore every day. They had a tunic and they had a cloak, which is why when Jesus says, if they ask for your cloak, give them your tunic as well, and you are there standing exposed, but you're also exposing their uh, injustice for taking everything from you. It's sort of like a prophetic, look what you're doing to me kind of thing. Um, And so anyone who had more than that uh, was very wealthy, because if you had more than that and you didn't have money, you would sell that and, and get money to live. And so they would take this clothing and they would um, put it away or they would bury it for a time when there was like a fancy thing that they were going to um, where they needed to wear some really nice, nice clothing. However, there was no way in the ancient world, they didn't have mothballs or airtight containers or that space bag that sucks all the air out for storage. Moths would just start eating the clothing. They Clothing did not last long. So if you're the kind of person who had extra clothes, um, they were. it's like driving a car. It's every day going down in value until the day where it's too eaten up to wear, and then you just throw it away and buy a new thing. Uh, so this was a big deal. Um, and then you have the second part here, uh, where moths and vermin destroy. Some of your translations, if you're using, I think, King James, New King James, or if you're using, I think, even maybe ESV, I don't remember, um, will say, where rust... Destroys metal is destroyed by rust. Um, um, in NIV, it says "where vermin destroy." Um, there's a discrepancy there because the word for vermin destroying is the word "brasis," and it simply means eating away. Um, but the reason the NIV translates it as vermin eating away is because they're using sort of the more the, the, the latest scholarship, which sort of understands that um, this is p- likely referring to a rich person with large storage houses full of grain. Um, There's a a story where Jesus tells of a person who comes into wealth and he has lots of grain and nowhere to store it all. Instead of giving it away to people who need food, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger barns. It's in the book of Luke 19, I believe. I'm going to build bigger barns. uh, And I'm going to put all that grain in the bigger barns. Um, And Jesus says, you fool, because today, tomorrow, what he says is, you fool, you've done all this work and you've stored up all this grain, tomorrow, basically, you're going to die and you don't even realize it. Um, And so this is the idea of the seconds a person would build these huge silos or these huge barns and he would fill it up with grain, with wheat, um, instantly, the rats and the mice would move in and the bats, and all these other things, and they would just start eating the food. There was, what Jesus is saying is, there's no way to keep anything you have, any kind of wealth you have, from just disappearing. You can't stop it from disappearing. So why are you trying to hold on to it? Now, we live in a more sort of complex, more intellectual society today, right, where, where we have all these fancy schemes of like, put money here, and it'll actually get bigger, it won't deteriorate, or at least it'll keep pace with the economy, and this and that, Um, and we fancy ourselves for being all secure in the the wealth that we have, and then something like 2008 happens, um, and people are just shocked that they would lose everything. I can't count on two hands the number of friends who had houses foreclosed on. We were just that generation that came of house-buying age at that particular time, and it went bad for all of us. Um, And... The decisions had nothing even to do with us. It was other people made decisions that stripped away the lives and the wealth of everyone else. Um, Jesus is being very prophetic. You can't keep it. It's all at risk, any given moment of the day. He goes even farther. He says, uh, where thieves break in and steal. So, um, the word break in... Uh, so a lot of your translations are going to translate this into ways that you will understand. Someone will smash a window break in your house and steal your stuff. Uh, in the ancient world, they had their own ideas um, about how things happened because they happened different. The word break in is the word dia rusain." It means, literally means to dig. Um, and the reason it's described like this is because um, this is sort of what the idea of the ancient Roman home... This one is a little more Egyptian, but it's still made out of mud bricks. It's kind of the same. Uh, it's, it's the same material they would build their houses out of. And... One thing things would do in the ancient world is they would take a uh, sort of a shovel or a rock and they would dig through the wall while you were gone. They wouldn't even bother breaking in the door or climbing in a window. Dig through the wall behind the house where nobody can see and climb in and just take your stuff. Um, if you had some money, um, you could purchase a strong box and put everything in what's called the strong box, big heavy thing. It'd be weighted down, it could be buried. Um, and it's harder to get through a wall because it'd be very, very big. And so that would be a little more protection. Most people didn't have any extra money to do anything with. And so what they would do is they would dig a hole in their house, uh, in the floor, and they would bury it. Some would make a, a tunnel and put, hide their money and their things that mattered to them in the hole. And so what Jesus is saying is, but you could, you could go to work today and come back. And somebody would have dug into your house and dug into your floor and just taken everything you have. There was no way of securing wealth in the ancient world. And Jesus is is commenting on that. What we have now is the illusion of protection of wealth in today's society. Society is much more fragile than we would be led to believe. And so the early Christians understood this. Um, And they chose to live in different ways. They said, this is not what life is about, buying up all this stuff, saving and saving and buying a car that every day is depreciating down to nothing. And he says, the, or the Christian said, we're going to do this differently. Now, um, I want to tell you a story about, uh, it, it, about this uh, guy named Emperor Decian. Um, in the year 250 um, CE, Emperor Decian is ruling over um, Rome. And he starts what's called the, uh, the Decian persecution of the Christians. So this is about a little less than 300 years after Jesus, after the time of Christ. And the Christians, the, the church is in full swing. Um, churches everywhere, spread throughout the Roman Empire and elsewhere. Um, and he starts this persecution, um, sort of reign of terror on the Christians, and is rounding them up, killing them. And At one point, he sends out um, his, um, his, his prefects, in his different cities, to say, hey, he says, hey, you know, people go to these Christian communities, people join these Christian communities, and they, they gather regularly, and they give money to the church, so I imagine these churches are full of money, why don't we just take their money? And so the Roman prefects in every town demand that the, the, the deacons of the churches, who are the ones who take care and watch after the dispersion of the money to the poor, um, demands that they bring all the treasures of the church and bring them to the palaces in Rome. And so the prefects start making these demands. And so the Roman prefect of, of uh, Rome calls one of the deacons. His name is, um, his name is Laurentius. He's, the he's one of the six deacons uh, in the church of Rome. Um, and He says, Laurentius, you have to bring all your treasures of your church here to our building. And so Laurentius shows up, and he's there. Um, and he stands before the Roman prefect, um, and instead of bringing money, what he brings is, he brings the widows and the orphans, orphans who were being fed, he brings um, the sick who were being nursed, he brings the poor whose needs were being supplied, And and he looks at the Roman prefect, and he says these, and he points at them all, and he says, these are the treasures of the church. And then I have a direct quote. He says this. He says, behold, these poor persons, the treasures which I promised to show you to which I will add pearls and precious stones, those widows and consecrated virgins which are the church's crown. So he says, the people, the people who are here, whom we have built relationships with, whom we have grown um, in life with, the people who have come with needs and we have fulfilled their needs and, and who have also come with needs and seen our needs and filled our needs, um, these are our treasures. What you consider wealth is not at all what we consider wealth. this is how the early Christians described treasures, heavenly treasures, treasures in heaven. That's what this is. Um, And so every time Laurentius is is drawn or painted, you will see um, um, the the Catholic Church hundreds of years ago declared him a saint. um, um, And I'm not Catholic, so I don't know what all that entails, but... um, He's, every time he's painted, he's drawn with this gridiron that he carries. The reason he's drawn with this gridiron is because um, after he makes this pronouncement, the, uh, the representative of Rome standing there was irate and he was angry. And he arrests him and, he, and he, he builds, right there in that room, he builds this giant gridiron, puts it over a fire and burns him alive on it and kills him. Um, and, and the whole time he's dying... Laurentius is making these like, comments about the kingdom. And at one point he turns while he's suffering and he looks at the Roman prefect and he says, turn me over, I'm well done. Like he's, it's like he doesn't care. Um, it's like he's got bigger things on his mind. Um, the Christians used to understand all of this. They used to get this. When they weren't seeking power and when they weren't seeking wealth and all of the things that the world has to offer. They found their heart and their meaning in a different place altogether. Um, and so most people were far more aware um, in, in, in these days of, of what life was really about. And so Jesus talks about how at first, you know, the fasting thing, hypocrites. He says don't, don't live for their, for, their, for their fame, their glory, their praise don't live for these earthly treasures because they can be taken away. Um, the um, The early church, instead, they decided that they were going to live in a way that they said, look, our money is going to deteriorate. It's all going to fall apart. Just like Jesus said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that money and we're going to put it where we can see it. We're going to put it in the lives of the people around us. We want to instantly see how great treasures we actually have got a pile of money. Let's see how great this money actually is and they would do something for someone that was beautiful and amazing and they would keep that. That can't be taken away. You carry that the rest of your life and say, look what God has done through me to these people around me and this is the treasures in heaven that the people would live. So there's this amazing idea behind all of this that are really connected um, the teachings of Christ with the first century church. Now, um, Jesus ends all of this, this conversation on treasures on earth and treasures in heaven with this other passage, and I want you to read this uh, with me. Um, just try to comprehend this for a second. It goes like this, uh, verse 21 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And you read that and you're like, that makes absolutely no sense at all. <laughs> and, and you're right. It didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to a lot of theologians I read. Um, and when you read the, theologians all about this, depending on honestly which um, tradition of Christianity they came from, if they're Reformed, Armenian or whatever, they're just sort of making it fit their ideas. Um, and so, three months ago, I was actually in Chicago. And I got a chance to have lunch with Scott McKnight. And I talked to Scott McKnight. He's an he's a, um, American theologian. He's written like 75 books. He, he's on the board of the NIV. Um, and I, he talked about this passage. I knew it was coming, and I'm like, okay, this makes no sense, and you know it, and let's talk about it. And he goes, okay, there's something else going on. And he gave me some stuff to read. Um, by, one of them is, um, it's a book written by a guy named um, Hans Beder Detz, and he wrote it with uh, Dale Allison and some other guy. I honestly forget his name. I didn't write it down. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, and they wrote like a four-book a four series, four-volume series called The Evil Eye, and it sounds incredibly boring, and it is, but it lays out some brilliant stuff that that a that ton of light on this passage. No pun intended. Um, okay, so I'm going to try to explain this so you'll understand it. Um, and the way my brain works is when I'm describing things, I, I have to use pictures in my brain. And so I'm going to put them up here. Um, and they're terrible. But hopefully this will make sense. Um, so I'm going to start with this. In the ancient world, there was two different theories on how the human eye worked. Remember, ancient world, no, um, no uh, scientific instruments, no ideas of like, uh, the human body, how it worked, they didn't have science, none of that. And so there's these people, there's, um, um, oh, I forget all their names, I, I had them all in my brain, it doesn't matter, there's all these ancient sort of physicians, and they're working on these different theories on how the eye, the human eye, works. Um, two theories were popular in the first century, in Jesus' day. Um, one of them was moving in and replacing the old one. Now, um, the first theory was, the, the new theory was called intermission. Um, and intermission sort of works like this. Light from the outside travels into the eye and into the body and sort of illuminating. Turns out that was right. They figured this out all by themselves without all our fancy stuff. Um, However, there was a a, a lot of controversy because it was replacing this old long-held tradition called extramission, which held that there was a light in the body of which the eye was considered the lamp lamp. Um, and that the eye was not passive, but active. The eye was sort of projecting light and scanning, sort of, in a way. Um, Which, if you just watch the human body, that's sort of, it looks like the eye is, like, doing something, like putting out, taking in. It looks like the eye is doing things. Um, But they considered, like, there was this divine, sort of, some people called it a divine spark, divine like light, sort of, and it was, it was in you and the eyes were the lamp. Either way, um, no matter which side you believed, there was this understanding that the eye was what they called the lamp of the body, a lamp. Um, you will see this if you just understand now, you have this context when you read the scriptures, when you read the word lamp and when you read the word eye, Switch those words, and you will see some profound spiritual thoughts. It's amazing. I'll show you some. Um, But um, they would think of a lamp, an ancient sort of thing, like genie kind of thing, right? Um, Christina Aguilera, genie in a bottle kind of thing. And they would light one end, and there'd be oil in it. Um, Oftentimes, when you look at these pictures of these ancient lamps, if you just Google them and look at them, oftentimes they are literally, if you look at them from the top, shaped like eyes. Um, It's the same shape, except there's a flame on one end coming out the end. So, um, when you read the scriptures and you see the word for lamp and the word for eye, oftentimes they're interchanged. Um, In the Old Testament especially, you have Proverbs 21, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Haughty eyes, lamp of the wicked, proud heart. Um, What's inside of you lights that lamp. Right? See? Okay. Um, And there's more. Proverbs 29, 13, the Lord gives light to the eyes. And so there's this sort of spirit indwelling and all that, all that language, and, and God lights your eyes. God gives light to the eyes. In other words, life. God brings life. Um, and so this is sort of, the, in the ancient world, you have extra mission sort of going on. This idea, it's like stuff moving from the inside to the outside. Um, and there's other passages. I mean, uh, thy word is a lamp to my feet. The scriptures are eyes for my feet. They help me see where I'm going, right? Um, you have the Zechariah talking about the seven lamps of God spread throughout the world. The seven eyes of God. God, it's, God sees everything. He was there. He saw. He's not oblivious to what's happening. All this language sort of plays together. And sometimes when you read the Bible, you need to understand a, a little bit of history. Um, you don't, I mean, you don't need to. You can, you can read it. I'm just helping supply a little more because there's tons of information out there. Um, and uh, some of this stuff kind of, pun, illuminates uh, what's going on in the text. Okay. Um, so now that we have all of this and hopefully I explained this well and you understand what's going on, let's read. I'm going to break today's passage, that light part into a couple parts and let's look at it. Um, but if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the lamp is broken, if it won't light, if the wick is burnt out, if the oil has gone, if the, if the lamp is, if the eyes are unhealthy, the lamp of the body is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Okay. So there's that. This now makes sense. There's no light in your body. There's nothing coming in. Um, so that, there's a bit of intermission there. Um, and there's a mention of extramission here, and then it moves back into intermission. If then the light within you, if then those of you who thought you had a light within you actually turns out to be darkness, if they're right about this. So he's literally commenting on first century um, like medical journals, I don't know. Um, if the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? So, look, if the lamp is broken and you don't have light inside of you, man, is it going to be dark in there. Okay, so that's sort of what's going on here. Maybe you'll you'll understand some of that a little better now. Um, But there's one more brilliant pun that Jesus is making. One more. It has to do uh, with the word he uses for healthy. If your eyes are healthy, if the lamp is healthy, if it's functioning right, if it's all working, your whole body will be full of light. Healthy is the same word. It's the word haplos. It's the same word that is translated throughout Scripture as generous. Because in a dark room, if you light a candle, that light shed, it's, it's generous. And this was the metaphor that they would use for being generous. Someone who just gives light. They're a generous person. They give light. Okay. So there's like this layered statement that Jesus is making, and I love it. And I was sitting at my desk, like so excited, like, babe, come look at this, and telling her about it. Um, I was like, you'll know when I draw pictures. Um, so if I was to like sort of take all of this concept and translate it into an under- like something that we could just read and understand, like sort of a commentary kind of thing, here's what I believe Jesus was, was saying. Um, be generous. And do godly things with what you have. For if you look at the world with generous eyes, emitting light everywhere that they look, then your entire body will be filled with generosity. It will be flowing out. It will also be flowing back in. But if the lamps of your eyes are broken, if they are not emitting generosity and lighting up the world around you, then you will never see a generous world and your heart will be filled with darkness. After pondering over this for a long time this week, this is the conclusion that I, that I honestly fully believe Jesus is, is giving us. Um, I would describe it also like this. Um, have you ever thought to yourself, like, I just, I haven't seen anyone be generous in a while. I, I just don't see any generosity in the world around me. Well, Jesus, what are you? If you want to see generosity in the world, do something generous, and then you will see it. It's sort of this, it's coming, it's, coming, it's coming out of you, it's also going into you, and whatever you pour out will be taken in. So he uses this sort of metaphor of the eye and how it works, and he says, just make sure the lamp works. Just make sure you're being generous, and it doesn't matter if it's going out or it's coming in, the whole thing is going to be full. You're going to be full, the world's going to be full. Whatever you want to see in the world, put it there, and you will see it. If the space you're in has no kindness, no grace, no goodness, no generosity, um, that also means that you are not giving those things. You are not being loving or kind or generous, and you're standing around talking and wishing someone else would do this thing. If you did it, it would be done. If you want to see a loving person, be a loving person, and then look in the mirror. There's one right there. It... Whatever it is that you want to see in the world, do it. Not only will it be there, you will be filled up. This, at the center of the Christian message, um, at the center of the universe, the heart of God, is a God who practices this, shows us how to do it, and then, like, asks you to do it and join him in it. So it starts off with a God who creates the world he wants to see and then puts the image of God there, so there's the image of God right there in the world. Um, And when things go awry, um, God wants to see a person whom he describes as like a truly human person, a truly human person, the way that humans were meant to be. And so God creates one, enters into the world, Jesus. What he wants to see, he does. Um, And perfect love in the scriptures is described as what? Perfect love, greater love hath no man, than this, and he laid down his life for another. God wants to see true love in the world. God brings true love in the world, lays down his life for another. God wants to see um, his people um, connected with and embedded with the spirit of God. God puts it there. This is everything. Everything that God intends and desires, God also produces. Everything that God wants to see in the world, God puts in the world. And then, and then Jesus says, follow me. He says, don't worry about whether people are, are pouring it into you. Pour it out. Just make sure, make sure the generosity is there and the generosity is flowing. So there's this huge condemnation of like the way people are living in the world the, the way people are in, engaging in, like, stacking up wealth for themselves, wealth that's just deteriorating. And he says, Look, you want to see justice? Do some justice. If you want to see someone stand up for this person who is oppressed and hurting, if you want to see someone stand up for them, go stand up for them and then look in the mirror. You will see someone standing up for them. Because what God intends to see in producing what God produces. This is the picture of the cross. Redemption, salvation, all of it. This is how it works. Um, We're going to take communion as an exercise in that. Um, Communion in this scenario would be the intermission, taking into us. Communion service, by the way, you can go ahead and take the elements if you'd like. Um, God sort of intermission, putting in us the gospel and this is our part where it flows out of us into the world so this is the part where we take it in we are reminded to go out here we are reminded um, make sure the lamp is not broken make sure make sure there is generosity in your heart and in your life and you will see a different kind of world and the things that you treasure I mean Jesus goes on in the passage to say um, where your your treasure is there your heart will be also if you are pouring into people you will love people if you're pouring into the stock market you're going to love the stock market like it's the same thing That's how life works. If you pour into your church, you'll love your church. If you pour into your neighbor, you'll love your neighbor. If you pour out into your kids, into your spouse, you will love them. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. Where you invest, that's where your passion is going to be. So our community servers, you guys can come on forward. We're going to take some time in prayer. um, And we're going to ask for grace, for wisdom, for understanding. We're going to ask for uh, eyes that are generous, that we would see the world... Um, through the eyes of God, and we would pour ourselves out. Our bodies would be broken and poured out for those around us. And that we would see new treasures, not the ones that we've always been living for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Give us new hearts, new minds, new ways of looking at the world. Illuminate the lamps of, uh, of our body, our eyes. Let us, let us be generous. Let us, when we look around, See generosity because we're being generous. Let us see love because we're being loving. Let us see reconciliation because we are taking part in reconciliation. Thank you that what you intended to see, you gave to us. You didn't stand there and demand it from us. Remind us of that. We make so many demands of the people around us because we want to see some particular thing and so we demand people give it to us. Let us remember how it works in the kingdom of God, in the realm of heaven. Whatever we desire to see, let us, let us give, let us produce. Let us take part in it in the renewal of all things. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take communion with us.